Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. For today's interview, I return to the Manchester Health Department to talk with Phil Alexikos, the Chief of the Environmental Health and Emergency Preparedness Division, about how he and his division plan and prepare for public health crises. As we remembered the 14th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, just a few days ago, Phil's division's focus has expanded from naturally occurring public health threats like pandemic flu to responding to bioterrorism. The interview is fascinating because Phil and his colleagues focus on developing capabilities to respond to a wide array of unknown and unknowable events by finding ways to repurpose existing infrastructure in diverse ways. The podcast concludes with how government organizations like the Health Department cannot do this mission alone. They need an army of volunteers. While Phil talks about some of the volunteer programs specific to New Hampshire, listeners should consider what opportunities they have to help make their communities more robust. Welcome to The Forge, Phil. Thanks very much for having me. So you are the Chief of Environmental Health and Emergency Preparedness for the Health Department for the City of Manchester in New Hampshire. When did you join the department and how did you get interested in public health? So my, um, I joined the department in the uh, fall of 1994, so now oh, all the, all the right. listeners know how old I am, essentially. <laughs> I have my background is I have a degree in biology from Bates College. Okay. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at things at the micro level, so the understanding of how things work the, that aren't, uh, things that aren't apparent is, is really important when you translate that into the macro sense of looking at population health and public health. So going from the microorganism all the way to mobilizing a community response sort of runs a pretty wide gamut. And um, you know, right after graduation, I worked in a chemistry lab at a local college. You know, I enjoyed working with, with students and the educational piece, which again has sort of somewhat guided me toward a public health approach. Um, I started at the Manchester Health Department as a sanitarian. Okay. Good luck trying to uh, tell people what that means. People have some pretty interesting uh, thoughts about what that is. But essentially, it's a health inspector position. We now call them environmental health specialists. Okay. Kind of sounds a little more professional, I guess. Uh Um, And the types of things that we do in the environmental side of the equation in terms of what I oversee are the folks that inspect restaurants and food establishments. They're looking at water quality and water sampling. In 2000, we started an arboviral surveillance program after the the outset of the West Nile virus introduction into the United States. So we actively collect and um, sort mosquitoes and the public health lab will then analyze them for a variety of different viruses. And uh, other things that we do, we do institutional inspections, schools, foster cares, child care facilities. We get involved in what we call a nuisance issues, quality of life, garbage, trash, rodents, you name it. We usually end up getting calls about it. And then we also get involved with wastewater treatment. Even though Manchester is an urban area, we do have some pretty rural or suburban parts that still have septic systems. So 
we have folks on staff that will, will carry out those functions. So we're very much a traditional environmental health outfit. And so the next question would be, what, why, why the jump into emergency preparedness and public health emergency preparedness? Yeah. And I want the listeners to know that, yes, I work for the government, but we are a 24-7 outfit. We, we like to say in public health, we don't have lights and sirens, but we are on call for any number of things. And even before the threat of bioterrorism, which we'll, we'll get into, if there's a communicable disease of concern that happens on a weekend or happens at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, those things don't wait. They can't wait. Right. You know, time is of the essence. So we have folks that are out doing directly observed therapy for people with active tuberculosis and other things that require public health presence. Uh, my staff are out inspecting food establishment, carnivals, festivals, and whatnot to keep the public health healthy and safe so that they can enjoy you know, what New Hampshire has to offer. And so because we have that 24-7 mindset and my folks are out during those times, and additionally, we get involved in some, we'll say, hazardous materials type situations in environmental health. So we work um, under the, the, the guise of healthy homes, which involves lead poisoning prevention, it gets into um, indoor air quality, and some of those applications and investigations require personal protective equipment. So it's another synergy that we have with emergency preparedness. So from a departmental and organizational um, standpoint, it made sense for emergency preparedness to fall you know, under the environmental division. So worked my way through the environmental health process. There is a national certification for environmental health specialists, which I'm very fortunate that our, many of our staff have attained that level of credentialing. Um, we're very... Uh, is that a recent credential or is that a, something that's been around for a long time? So it's been around for a long time through the National Environmental Health Association. It's not a recognized credential like in other states and some counties where if you're doing environmental health inspectional work, you need to have that type of credential. Okay. I say long ago because I've been doing this a while. Our director, uh, Fred Russick, really saw the value of credentialing and competency-based demonstration and built that into a career ladder for not only the environmental health specialists but other professionals within the department because, uh, you know, demonstrating that, you know, you, you have those skills and abilities and the knowledge and apply them, you know, I think is integral into any business, government, uh, et cetera. Sure. Um, so obtain that. And then the, the, I had the good fortune of the University of New Hampshire starting a master's of public health program um, in 2002, one, two, locally here in Manchester. I was at the point in my career where I had been ex exposed, and not in the communicable disease sense, but <laughs> uh, exposed to different aspects of environmental and public health that were really interesting. Um, and so I took full advantage of the opportunity to not have to drive to Boston. That was uh, really important for me personally. I had a young, a very young family and, uh, you know, working a full-time job, it's, it's a lot to take on, but really knew that it was something that I wanted to not only have as a job, but, but a career and a profession, passion really. And, and that opportunity has really opened up a lot of doors to expand my horizons and get involved in different initiatives here at the department, across the state, and even nationally. So you've got your master's in public health from the University of New Hampshire Correct. here in Manchester. Yes, um, which has been a great program for working professionals. And kind of taking another step, um, I was fortunate to be asked to teach 
the environmental health course in that program back in 2010, and, I, and I've been fortunate to be asked back. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's exciting for me because I love what I do and I want to share the, the local and, and perspective to students that often we get you know, the theory and you know, the reading and being able to show you know, what happens with boots on the ground and bringing in folks from the state subject matter experts and even some, um, some other professionals from other states to show the different opportunities within public health that, that exist. We don't have robust, what I would call traditional public health infrastructure uh, with, in the count, state? You know, with county health departments mm -hmm. and local health departments. And a lot of it is economies of scale. So we're going to talk a little bit about how the state organizes around public health emergency preparedness yeah. and even some of that really important and um, successful work has started to plant seeds for public health and other initiatives using the similar infrastructure. So we're not going to see county-based health because county government isn't a strong government. It's, it's very established as performing certain functions. Other parts of the country, the majority of the country, county government is, is really where the, uh, the action is, so to speak, and the funding. Um, and so that's how those services are delivered. That's not how it works in a smaller state. So we are looking for creative ways to deliver those services and, and as we'll talk about, plan for different types of emergencies and, and all hazards incidents. So that's Great. sort of a, a broad brush. Yeah. That's, I started in the, in the preparedness world in 2006. So uh, many things have happened. Some people have blamed me since you took this job. We've had two floods, <laughs> and a tornado nearby. We've had ice storms, wind storms, snow apocalypse, you name it. We've seen H1N1. We've had, you know, the Ebola most recently to, to deal with. And hopefully by the time we're done talking and chatting, yeah. um, even though we started off planning for the smallpox and anthrax event, a lot of the work that we've done with our partners to plan for those, we'll call them doomsday scenarios, we've been able to utilize those blueprints, if you will, and manage other events like hepatitis A, hepatitis C, these types of things, fungal meningitis and other, we'll call them other challenges that aren't bioterrorism per se, but the principles and elements of our planning and, and training are readily applied to those types of situations that we are more likely to deal with. Okay. so. You started to talk about the public health infrastructure mm -hmm. in the state, so maybe we could kind of start sure. there and talk a little bit about how does the state of New Hampshire organize public health and kind of down to the city and town level where you are at? Yep, so in terms of, we'll talk more about um, public health emergency planning and response. Manchester and Nashua, as most folks know, a lot of folks know, have what we would call traditional fully functioning health departments that provide the services that people would expect if you're coming from outside of New England at a health department. Um, outside of that, you know, a lot of services and other things are delivered through either state, so centralized to the state, like food inspections or uh, septic system installation inspections and other functions. And so, you know, that's sort of, you know, the process. After 9-11, you know, the, the immediate move afoot was how are we going to vaccinate our population against a smallpox attack? Right. Or shortly thereafter, we had anthrax in the mail. 
We don't have the 10 days to um, activate a response for a smallpox incident. We have 36 hours at best to prophylax a population of 1.3 million. Right. There was Which no is the population of New Hampshire, is what correct. you're talking about. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and specifically, we needed to come up with a way to capitalize on existing partnerships and, and what infrastructure there is or was at the time to try to, to do that. So the, the initial thrust was to design public health regions okay. around the hospital service areas. So there are 26 acute care hospitals and there were 21 public health regions. So a couple of regions had two hospitals. Manchester has CMC and the Elliott and the VA, which wasn't counted in that because they don't have inpatient, but and other regions have two. As, and sort of the underlying theme to this will be, you know, a lot of our funding that we receive is, is federal money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at, at some data from, I think it was Robert Wood Johnson, about per capita public health spending in states. And it's really difficult to come up with a way to compare states to, to other states. So looking at block grants and other monies categorically was a way to do that. In New Hampshire, um, from my, my data, uh, is I think 38th in per capita, and that's 38th, so that's not on the good end of the scale in terms of, of okay, so, state dollars, right. but it, it was 15th when you look at federal dollars. Combined with state, just or, or just federal? In, individually. So okay. we are very reliant on federal money coming into the state to perform public health services as well as emergency response services. And looking at the last, I think it was eight years of data, our public health preparedness grant has been chipped away at, like many programs. Um, this is a federal grant? Correct. Okay. The state um, had been receiving over $5 million in that core preparedness grant. I think we're now around $4.8 million, which doesn't seem like a lot in terms of change, right. but it's not like the threats and hazards are going away. Case in point, the hospitals receive a separate pool of money to work on preparedness and training and personal protective gear, which last year and the year before had received a significant cut. I think it was over 30%. And then right after that, we have Ebola come about. And I think that you, if you asked folks that are involved in health systems, that really, those cuts were deep and you know, in terms of remobilizing a response and making sure that people were comfortable and trained on some pretty significant personal protective equipment. You know, I'm sure that the after action reports will bear out some of that, but you know, it was a very inopportune time for that to have happened. And we, we can't let our guard down. You know, yeah. we're dealing with organisms, we're dealing with things that evolve and adapt. Um, so when you're talking about biologics, the, the flu is constantly changing, mutating, reassorting, and you know our level of immune experience to those organisms varies. And looking historically, even before 2001, the public health emergency that public health professionals were planning for was another pandemic influenza looking you know cyclically just by genetic reassortment and sort of the odds. You know, we would expect a flu to come about that most people had never experienced before from an immune perspective. So 
you know, we were talking and thinking about the flu, and then we had 2001 occur and everything changed. So the state set up these 21 regions, and then as you look at the regions, they're built around the hospitals because the hospitals in most areas are the hub of any health effort. But as relationships were stronger in different ways, the state took feedback and then went down to 19 regions and then some other refining, I think coupled with some monetary concerns, where we went down a few more. Now we're at 13. Okay. I would imagine that's probably going to be pretty stable. And you know, some of the issues around, they, they don't necessarily line up with counties. They may overlap uh, school districts in a couple of cases. So it, it becomes very important to build planning from the ground up. Right after 9-11, the Secretary of Health and Human Services played on an old Tip O'Neill quote of, you know, all politics is local, while all public health emergency response is also local. Right. You know, people know their communities, they know their, you know, populations and schools, but they may not have the tools to carry out the function. And so looking at things at a regional perspective allows you to pool assets and and knowledge and planning that in many cases already exists or existed and develop some some planning and some response plans. So we I kind of alluded to the anthrax and smallpox scenario. So if we can, I'll just tell you, give you kind of a, a scope of what that really means. It's one thing to say, yeah, we're gonna we need to treat so many people in so many hours or so many minutes. But for our public health region, which involves Kind of a widespread, of course, you have a, an urban center with 110 plus thousand people, and then you have, you know, Deerfield to the east, mm -hmm. and you have New Boston to the west, yeah. which are pretty rural and pretty distant from Manchester. And so when smallpox was our primary concern, and we had 10 days for folks who aren't familiar with the incubation period and the treatment protocol, but if you can vaccinate folks within 10 days of an exposure, their prognosis is a lot better than if you exceed that period of time. So that was our goal, is to get everybody in our region to three different clinic sites that would be run in Manchester, because at the time, you know, we capitalized on our partnerships within the city limits yeah. over a very long period of time uh, to deliver a very difficult vaccination, which is not your standard small gauge needle flu shot. It's a, a crochet hook, a bifurcated needle that has to be kind of poked and prodded on the surface. And if you were born before, at or before 1972, you have a, um, a souvenir yeah. of that process. But what we don't know is whether or not that immunity is really protective at you know, the distance and time from we, when we hopefully will never experience it. I know I got I got immunized when I joined the army back in 1989. So right. Yeah, yeah. So if in certain professions, you know, you would be you know vaccinated, yeah. um, and then even anthrax, there's a lot of discussion about that vaccine process. But in the, if you're in the military, you would receive other protective. But the vast majority of the population, as you're saying, yeah. has never had the smallpox vaccination. Correct. And so we'd be especially vulnerable to, to that. Absolutely. And we would, we would plan to vaccinate everyone because we don't... What's your population in the area? You said you'd bring, yeah. you'd bring all these people in to three clinics in 
10 days. It's, so what, it's what are we a, talking about? 110,000 for, for Manchester? 185,000 is our most recent wow. estimate. So to try to get the 185, that's 60,000 people per clinic in 10 days. And 24-7. Yeah. So the towns at that time were responsible for developing their own strategies for busing their citizens to the three clinics. Because we have, and I'll, I can't, no one will see the air quotes, but you have the luxury of 10 days of time right. to, of course, everybody's going to want it at once, but, sure. you know. On we, day one. Yeah, yeah, and we have to reassure <laughs> people that we have time, but I think good luck with that, right? So on paper, we could make the numbers work. We had volunteers who actually uh, were vaccinated, revaccinated, because they would be the ones who would be delivering the, the vaccine and the immunization to folks. So then we had anthrax in the mail, and Manchester has a long and storied anthrax history, which really um, is uh, an interesting um, anecdote um, <clears throat> because it was a textile capital hub of the world. Um, anthrax spores can be found in animal hides, and up until the 1950s, when the mills were functional, um, the last significant outbreak of occupational anthrax was actually in the arms mills, which is very familiar to UNH folks. Um, and there's, we have pictures hanging out in our foyer detailing CDC coming and setting up uh, a decontamination process and decommissioning of the building. So they supervise the disinfection, scrubbing, and gassing of all of those bricks. And those bricks are are buried somewhere that a lot of people might go and visit uh, in Manchester if they like amateur baseball or semi-professional baseball. Uh, and we've had some interesting situations with uh, when they were putting in the light fixtures at what was at the time Singer Park. Um, they were worried about maybe impacting some of those Areas maybe releasing some of the spores. So they were if concerned they about were that. So yeah. that was a Friday afternoon special. We call them when we get this call on a Friday afternoon, and we're on the phone with CDC to talk about the study and tests. We did more testing, and you know everything was not only gassed with chlorine gas, but formaldehyde scrub. So the anthrax spores are pretty hardy and can persist in the environment. So they, they went through a pretty rigorous process, but still just the thought of it makes people very nervous. UNH, as some folks might know, had a, um, an issue a few years ago where there was a, a, a building just off a of campus where they were doing a drumming circle and they were using drums with animal hides. And one of the folks in that drumming circle was diagnosed with gastrointestinal anthrax, which is of the anthrax, it's probably the one that we wouldn't expect. There are three different ways or portals to get into you. One would be inhaling it, which is what happened with folks in the mail, um, which is the most virulent of the ways of, so people have a much worse outcome potentially, keeping in mind that things are treatable. Antibiotics do work against anthrax. It's a bacteria. And so inhalation is one method. Most exposures would be cutaneous, so people working with these products. If there's a nick in the skin, you can develop a, a localized infection. It's a nasty Escher 
basically necrotic tissue death at the site of the exposure, um, which usually isn't fatal unless it becomes systemic. But the gastrointestinal means that the spores were actually ingested. Okay. And the theory is that because there was a meal that occurred in concert with the, the drumming circle, that somehow this the person had spores and for whatever reason they colonized their gut and essentially results in tissue death. Um, the person did live, but it, it, that was a, I remember being on a conference call on Christmas Eve. So I think that's sort of like the underlying rule of public health is again, things, sometimes your plans are gonna change. And right. I don't think, I don't know that the public realizes that all of these things often go on behind the scenes and we're putting out the fire, so to speak, yeah. um, on a daily basis. So hopefully people realize that you know we, we're out there doing that work. It just doesn't get a lot of you know, attention. So that's my little right, right. promotion for what we do, I guess. Uh, so with the anthrax scenario, we don't have days, we have hours. So from the time that either there's you know, a, a system, a surveillance system that suggests that maybe we have anthrax-like symptoms coming into an emergency department, for instance, and we do have systems in place to sur do surveillance of patient data, emergency um, medical services, ambulance runs, um, a whole host of different things, even over-the-counter medications. I like to use the example when I teach classes around surveillance that if there's a gastrointestinal bug in the community and everybody's going to the store to buy Pepto and the surveillance system will show an uptick in GI meds, if you will, and we can sort of correlate whether it's in a, you know, a community, there's re there are reports that come out to show trends. So trying to match up, let's say there's a school outbreak of something, you know, are we seeing that in other data sets? And these are relatively new systems, but hopefully the idea is that we can maybe even predict or anticipate certain things. So it's pretty interesting tools that we have available to us that's, now. That's an interesting thing you're mentioning here. So do you actually get reports from, say, retail pharmacies in some sort of... So, so there are participating, participating um, groups that report their data. Of course, it's no patient. It's just sales uh -huh. data, essentially, uh -huh. um, so that the state can track. I'm sure this is going to make people nervous, but there's no personally identifying information. It's uh -huh. all aggregate. Uh, yeah. It's always okay. a concern, and I absolutely appreciate that. But there, the hope is that we can anticipate impacts, and it gets it gets to if we see uh, influenza-like illness, and it's a strain of flu that we haven't dealt with before, and we see the hospitals are surging, the people are out buying meds. You know, one of our public health responsibilities is if the hospitals become so overwhelmed, right. we might need to stand up sort of a secondary facility. So that instead of people going to the emergency department, they would have they would be able to go somewhere else, so that they don't tax the hospital, and that's a public health rule that we haven't had to implement. Uh -huh. um, and, but but if you had a true outbreak of influenza, for example, yeah. you could have thousands of people absolutely, Ill, and the hospitals have a few hundred beds each. Correct. Right. So and they have their own surge plans, but uh -huh. you know the, a lot, the data that we see, the hospitals are running. Pretty, pretty close to capacity as it is without you know, an outbreak. So there are a lot of different things, pieces of information that we look at. And if we were to have you know, an issue, and one of the things that we plan for very specifically 
is in Manchester's postal facility, there is a, a biohazard detection system that takes air samples from the mail sorting line. And the mail is sorted at a certain time period every day, and this machine runs during that period. And if there are anthrax spores, the alarm will go off. And I probably should knock on wood. I am, <laughs> I am superstitious like that. Um, the alarm would go off. Uh -huh. the, the facility would be shut down. Any mail that had left that would be recalled. Anybody who was there, even in the lobby, would be kept. They'd be deconned on site by the fire department. Um, then they would be taken to a clinic location and be given prophylaxis. So Cipro or doxycycline or amoxicillin, if you don't, I guess, qualify for those meds, we have a cache of supplies for that specific issue. So that's ongoing. Um, if that were to happen, we have a plan to dispense. We call them points of dispensing, okay. otherwise known as pod. Um, I like to think of them, and this is the, the beauty of using tried and true planning processes. The, the plans that we develop, as I mentioned before, are locally based. So it's not the state or the Manchester Health Department telling um, Gosstown or Bedford how to do it. They know their facilities. We do walkthroughs and assessments and figure out what would make sense. So getting back to the anthrax model, we've got 36 hours to do the same amount of people. We can't pull that off with three clinics. Right. So we have gone through the process over the last five years of developing plans for two different locations in each town or clump of towns. So in any good emergency plan, you've got the primary site and you have a backup. And so what we want to do over time is practice, set up communications, notification of partners, do that on an ongoing basis. So if we had to do something big, we would be ready. If a community was having an issue with meningitis just in a school system or a school or a group of schools, we could take the anthrax plan and scale it. I like to think of, for visual people, learners, an accordion. Okay. Our plan could be huge. Right. It could also be very small. So we can use the same footprint, the same stations where people register and get triaged. The number of people that you fill into the roles will be the sort of the variables. And we can aim for the big number and we can scale it accordingly. We've done that with several public health issues. I mentioned Hep A, Hepatitis okay. A, Hepatitis C, where all of our pods are dispensing. And if you think about what was done in those clinics is we were collecting, we were collecting blood samples to test for Hep C. So even though our plan said dispense, 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 we still bring people in, we still register them, we still move them through a process. We just added a few more links on the chain. We needed to find some other professionals that maybe we didn't work with before. So one very good learning moment is I spend a lot of time every year going out to allied health programs, nurses, PAs, pharmacists, anyone who wants to hear about preparedness and most likely would be involved in response, you know, I kind of give them a primer similar to what we're doing today. Well, most professionals aren't real comfortable drawing blood. Okay. So we needed phlebotomists. And what we found is that 
you know, fortunately, I, I work with Manchester Community College. They have a medical assistance program, and one of their core competencies is phlebotomy. Sure. And so we learned a lot about, you know, there's no, there isn't a phlebotomy license, but there are lots of folks that either are or aren't comfortable doing that function. So you learn something from every event, planning, real world, or exercise. And that's another real hallmark of the process that we, that we do. You know, everybody has to go to meetings, but hopefully we're, we're thinking ahead. We're going to meet, we're going to do training, we're going to schedule a way to test out certain components of our plans. Uh-huh. So maybe this year we're going to focus on communications. One of the things that we did most recently is we've developed some capacity with amateur radio as a backup to the backup to the backup to the backup. Phones are down. Cell service is down. Maybe the text messages aren't working. The Internet's down. That happened with the October snowstorm a few years ago. So having partners, partnerships with folks that had amateur radio licenses we now have folks in our emergency operations center, which is already the case, but now we have the ability not only as a, a region, but also as a department to take portables out and establish um, command and control structure. So Using community members who have amateur radio? Yeah. Or, or, or is this? Yeah. So we, we, uh, we're very, we can't do this alone. I, I should say that. Think about the numbers. 185,000 people, each clinic, if we were to run an equal number, we'd need about seven clinics to run at the same time uh, with about anywhere from 75 to 100 people per shift working them. We're talking a lot of folks. So we know that that's a pretty onerous task and we're looking at other ways to dispense. Uh So we may not take everybody to the pod. We may say, send one person per family and we'll give you a gift package to take home. That's less cars, that's less bodies. You know, that works for some folks, it might not work for others. Um, we're looking at you know, other models, but we need medical folks to vol- volunteers as well as non-medical. So just because we're doing something clinical, we need an equal number of non-medical folks to help us with response. And this is, and I know I'm talking a lot about our region, but this is, there, it's no different in any of the other public health regions. You know, we are very reliant on volunteers and partnerships and even repurposing folks. The person who collects taxes mm-hmm. or the folks that work at, at the elections, they're very good at working with people. They're very good at working off of checklists. They would be very good at registering people at a clinic. They don't need, they're not going to get into your, the clinical stuff, but they're very proficient at how their school is set up for voting. They know the flow. We don't, we're not creating plans out of thin air. We're saying, what do you have in place? You know, what works? Let's, let's do something that, that we can capitalize on. And so constantly trying to develop capacity and volunteers. And we'll talk a little bit about a few examples of, of volunteerism that, yeah. that folks that are, that are listening can think about and see what may be available to just be part of you know, the community fiber. I think one of the things that if you ask folks, and we've done this as a health department within different parts of the city, is I don't think people feel connected with their neighbors. Right. You know, people are in and out, moving around, but we can, we can develop that core. It makes us more resilient, and it really allows us to focus our response on the folks that are most vulnerable. 
we're New Hampshireites. We're very hardy folks, but you know we need to look out for one another, and we need to make sure that you know we build that capacity to be self-sufficient until we can uh, you know get resources and to fix the power or fix the roads or you know gain access. So it's a pretty it's a comprehensive planning process, and I know I sent you some things about what are our objectives and capacities and competencies, and essentially. In public health, we're very good at bringing people together around issues. I think that's a strength of what we do on a daily basis. Um, so we take that skill and we try to translate that into operation. Okay. So you've been talking a bit about partners. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of who are the formal partners that you have uh, working with you in the Manchester area. Sure. And, and this is pretty applicable to other regions as well. Um, because we want to, and CDC provides a pretty good framework of 11 different community dimensions or partner groups that we should engage if we truly want to have a prepared, resilient, and ready-to-respond community, and it runs a pretty wide stretch. We have, in our region, uh, representation from each town. Uh, that might be the fire chief, police chief, uh, health officer, depends on level of interest, level of availability, but we want folks from each town to be part of the discussion. Uh, when we meet, we, our particular planning group meets every other month uh, or more frequently as needed. When I put Ebola on the agenda, I had about 40 people show up, but usually it's, it's updating folks, sharing information about upcoming partnerships and our drills and exercises and trainings. But some, sometimes it's a lot more specific. We spent a lot of time with our medical and clinical partners about personal protective equipment around Ebola response. So just because we started with anthrax and smallpox, you know, what we are looking at other, the, the issue du jour, um, and we've even broadened that scope. So as I mentioned before, we have these regions, and there's a very strong, in each region, public health emergency response team, planning team. There's also kind of now parallel to that a group, a strong group of substance misuse professionals. So looking at the idea of building public health in general and in these regions and because the money goes into DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services, they have substance misuse structure, they have public health emergency response structure, and looking at the linkages between those two groups and looking at, well, what else can we do from a public health perspective? And there's a lot of overlap because the substance misuse folks work with police and schools quite a bit. And public health, we work a lot with healthcare and fire departments a lot. Yeah. So building on those, those strengths is, is a way to get you know, optimal participation. So you work with the substance misuse folks in a way to kind of over use their infrastructure that they've got built. So a lot of yeah. what you're talking about is we've got existing infrastructure, we want to be able to use it mm -hmm. to kind of do your accordion effect and be able to, to sure. employ yeah, existing, existing resources. Yeah, we're always looking to improve and not rest on, yay, we made a bunch of plans. You know, it, it's, it's finding a way to improve the plans and test them at some frequency and train and retrain folks because the last time we really engaged a lot of partners with was around H1N1 
which we're able to go out and do clinics in all of our jurisdictions pretty much and allowed for the for the, the local officials to kind of run the clinic. They're, that's not what they do on a day-to-day basis. Right. So we were able to use that as a training opportunity. But, you know, pe- turnover happens. You can't just rest on your laurels of, of a particular issue. It's it's ongoing. So, so you run an, an H1N1 clinic, mm-hmm. and the people who might be pushing you through might be the same people who run the voting, which is what you were saying earlier. Very, it, it very well could, and it's up to the that's towns kind of to identify yeah. how they're going to fill the positions and, and our role as kind of the hot, I like to think of it as we've got spokes on the wheel. We may have multiple facilities open and the health department maintains sort of an incident command center. So that if there's a need for additional supplies or meds or medical consult, we can provide that level of support, you know, and let them, you know, run, run their facility. We'll likely send out one of our senior staff to each location to sort of, you know, depending on the level of sophistication and comfort, you know, they may be the operations chief within an incident command structure to help with making sure things are going smoothly. But, but a lot of this is about repurposing existing infrastructure. I think that's, yeah, that's ab- fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, are not de- there are no dedicated clinical staff you know. Which in a way would be wasteful if you had, because yeah, it's, the once in a, it's the once every couple right. of years we have some big thing. So we don't want to sustain all this infrastructure just for that when it happens. So being able to repurpose, mm-hmm. being able to train to be able to repurpose is an important function. Absolutely. Here. And we look very creatively. We're fortunate in Manchester that the school nurses work as health department employees. That's so right. that's 30 plus very competent staff that we have that we can put into clinical roles. That doesn't necessarily exist with the flick of a switch in other towns. So for, that's one example of a very important group to engage and re-engage to talk about roles, whether it's dispensing, whether it's working in a shelter environment, which is now the thrust of our, our planning is looking at shelter operations because public health is, has not had the, the presence or responsibility to work in shelter operations up until fairly recently. What do you mean by shelter operations and, and what would they be used for? Sure, so one of our, um, I'll take two steps back. Um, in any emergency plan, and I'm talking about at the local level, so each community is responsible to have a local emergency operations plan. And the way that they're organized is around what we call emergency support functions. Okay. Things like transportation and um, you know, vol- uh, food and water and health and medical and mass care. So mass care is a responsibility that's designated in every emergency operations plan. Um, what used to happen is we'd have a plan for a flood, we'd have a plan for an earthquake, and it's better to organize around sort of the building blocks that will support any type of response. We call it all hazards. Instead of writing okay. a plan for every scenario, we write a plan that talks about the different competencies that we would need to plug into any scenario. And then you have this, I'm simplifying, a grid that says if we have this, you know, we're going to need all these, these emergency support functions operating. Okay. So public health is always responsible for ESF-8, which is health and medical. Okay. That's pretty standard. Where we haven't had a very active role is ESF-6, which is mass care. 
And now, in the last few years, mass care shows up in our CDC public health emergency preparedness capabilities. There are 15 of those. So we have acronyms, we have capabilities, and we have you know capacities and competencies and okay. everything else, which is yeah. fine. Yeah. But there now is better synergy between sort of the bigger framework and where public health fits. Now, depending on the community, it's usually emergency management that makes it makes the decision about whether to open a shelter or not. And what we've been trying to, to do as regions is say, if you open a shelter, because it's not the public health role to say we're going to open a shelter, if you open a shelter, it's not just set up some beds and get some food and water. Once you open a shelter, you're responsible, and this is through federal law, the Stafford Act, um, you're responsible to deal with or accommodate functional needs, special medical needs, as well as pets. And one of the things that was a huge lesson learned, not only around functional and special medical needs, but pet sheltering, that after the Katrina, Katrina yeah. debacle, we'll call it, people died because they would not leave their animals and for lots of other you know, horrible reasons. And so every, every entity that wants to open a shelter, every municipality is required to plan for the gamut. So it doesn't mean that a shelter has to have be animal friendly, but you as a community need a plan that animals are gonna go here. So maybe an MOU with Phil's kennel. Okay. And you've planned for it and you can accommodate that. Where we're finding the public health role in sheltering is sort of multifaceted. I work with health officers and each community has a health officer by statute, but many times they're not, they may be a volunteer. It's a statutory requirement, but a lot of, most communities don't have a full or part-time health official. A lot of the full and part-time health officials do food inspections. So there are 16 communities that do their own food inspections for restaurants and whatnot. So taking the skills that they use in that arena and making sure that they can plug into the sheltering response to make sure that we don't have a foodborne outbreak on top of a sheltering scenario. Right. And, you know, I use... Uh, you know, the cruise ship example is you've got a confined space and you have a very infectious agent, whether it's foodborne or otherwise like norovirus, you're going to have a, an emergency on top of an emergency. And by drilling down into the nitty gritty of, all right, do we have food safety covered? What about folks with chronic disease management? How are we going to get medications? It's, it's a lot more complicated. And I think the other thing that folks assume and many plans still have it written is that the Red Cross is going to run everyone's shelter if you want to open one. And I, I would imagine if you ask the public who's responsible for sheltering, they would say the Red Cross. Well, the Red Cross does wonderful work. We use all of their templates and plans and you know trainings for any type of sheltering, but they don't have the capacity. And there's a lot of different fiscal reasons for that, which we won't go into. But they have all of those wonderful assets, but they just don't have the capability to set up a shelter in 10 towns. It's not going to happen. Right. So the reality is, and, our, and we, we received a directive years ago from our mayor saying we need to be ready to do it ourselves. And granted, we have a large population, so we, you know, we should be able to initiate that. 
you know, are we going to ask for consultation and walkthroughs and guidance and guidelines? Absolutely. We don't want to, there's no need to recreate process, uh, but we need to develop our own plan. So uh, a team of folks which much overlap between partners. So we had folks from the hospitals, uh -huh. which if people are, if there's no shelter open, they're going to the hospital. Okay. So they have a vested interest in making sure people aren't going to the hospital for reasons that are not critical. So they were on the planning team. So not just going to look for a place to sleep, but a... Or plug your phone or in. Plug your, yeah, okay. I mean, uh, it's, it's at sure. that level now. Sure. So understanding that we have folks from transportation. So we have a transit authority in Manchester. So we need ways to, you know, get people from point A to point B and pets. Right. So we have a cache of kennels and other things. If we had to evacuate folks, you know, we have a, a, the ability to bring, get those quickly to the scene in an emergency. So okay. that's, that's pretty far into the weeds in terms yeah. of planning. Yeah. Uh, we have folks, of course, from the schools because most communities are using public buildings, right. which happen to be schools. For sheltering purposes. Exactly. Yeah. And, for, and for dispensing and, okay. mo most yeah. of the time. Yeah. You know, it, it's, there are provisions for local emergency managers to acquire private property in emergencies, but mm -hmm. I can't see that ever yeah. happening unless it But a was, school is great because it's designed to push lots of people through. And people right? are familiar with yeah. schools. Okay. The traffic patterns, the voting, yeah. it all... It's all there. Police, right. you know, know where to put folks and whatnot. So that it's, it is comfortable. Where, yeah. we, where we have a, an issue, so for all the funders in the audience, please fund generators when we <laughs> need generators. Okay. Because we have wonderful plans, but if there are no lights to see the plans, you can see right. what would happen. Right. That is a that is an ongoing challenge, and for for everybody. So your partners, you kind of that you shared with me yeah. include your, like you talked about members from various the towns, your hospitals. So they are they're read into these plans that you're doing. Yep, yeah. as well as the healthcare system. I should I should mention that it's not just about the hospitals; it's about health systems. Um, we have I mentioned Elliot and CMC. We have a community health center. We have a Community Mental Health Center. We have Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is a wonderful partner. Uh, we have Bedford Ambulatory Surgical Center, which is you know a different type of facility, but has huge benefits if we have a surge situation. So it's you know the the four walls of the hospital, but it's, mm -hmm. it's hospital systems, healthcare mm -hmm. systems, and allied health. Um, we don't talk a lot about other professionals when we talk a little bit later about volunteers. You know, we look at veterinarians, dentists, anybody who is licensed in their, in their allied health profession has a role, a clinical role, as determined by the event. So I would be very comfortable with, you know, a veterinarian or a dentist giving me an injection. If you think about what they do in their practice, sure, I think they'd be very yeah. adept at it. And in fact, in some events like H1N1, this, the standard of care, more air quotes, has, will be altered knowing that we just don't have enough folks. You know, to give a vaccine is paramedics, they can tube you. I mean, so, yeah, you know, so they deliver giving a shot meds. Probably can All handle that. EMT yeah. intermediates do more and more advanced pr uh, procedures with a little additional training module. They were permitted to do H1N1 um, vaccinations. So, you know, things will, again, be scaled for the event. 
but to the fact, uh, to the point where we can engage students, and that's one of our big initiatives right now, is it's great to go out and talk to students about what we do, and then they'll forget about it when they have another guest lecturer. But if we can go come back a second time and do a mock clinical rotation of a, what is a pod and set up the stations, you know, we can have an agreement that, all right, I know that they understand why we're doing it and how to do it. If they're under the clinical supervision of one of their professors, yeah. we can have, I think it's a one to eight or one to 10 ratio in an emergency. And that so this is, might be like nursing students or yeah, a nursing and, program, for example. And that's a built-in chunk of people that helps me put together a staffing matrix for whatever the event is. Wow. And that's, that would be ongoing. So I, it, it's always changing. We're always looking to, and it's, a, and it's really beneficial for the students. I, I mean, it's self-serving to the greater cost, but yeah. you know, that's a neat hands-on learning that you know, you're not going to get no. out of a textbook Absolutely or a video. Not. Yeah. So, so you have um, some public health emergency functions and you have, a, you have a planning group that meets every other month. You've kind of been talking about this a little bit. Yeah. Tell, tell them a little bit about, more about what, that, what they are and what do they do. Sure. The group had gotten together in a smaller sense to talk about pandemic influenza prior to 2001, but really galvanized right afterward to look at the threat of bioterrorism. And it involved mostly health partners, um, hospitals, health systems, fire, emergency medical services, to figure out you know, how are we going to pull off a clinic or a clinical process. And we meet every other month. Sometimes it's kind of rehashing, doing sort of a after action meeting of, of something. So we've, we've talked about Ebola, the good, the bad, and the not so good. Yeah. Um, and how do we improve what we've done? I think where a lot of folks and institutions and organizations kind of fall short is you have something happen, you talk about it, and then it just goes away and we go on to the next thing. If we don't take the time to go back and fix the problems and account for who's going to do it and how long, and that's where we get back to the, the whole incident management system, how we organize the response to an event, but also how do we evaluate the event. And it's, it's an accountable process which kind of forces everybody to do that final step. Yeah. So any, any sort of emergency management process as a wheel, you know, you, you plan, you first you try to mitigate what you learn. So if you learn that maybe we shouldn't build in this area because it's a, most likely a flood hazard, we change the zoning maps. You know, then we plan for what ifs, then we you know, look for materials and things that we might need, we respond, we sort of figure out what went well, what didn't go well, and we do it all over again. You know, it's, it's a cyclical, it's like any business model essentially. Mm -hmm. But that's often where things wouldn't go full circle. So we're constantly looking to improve. So our regional functions, I alluded to many of them. Um, sheltering is the most recent one. And I say regional, um, we, our region is not at the point where we have agreements that we're gonna set up one big giant regional shelter. Manchester has been working very hard on our own sheltering plan, mm -hmm. which we're going to give to all the other towns as a template. Where I think we're going to go in the next two years is determining are there trigger points where it might be beneficial to set up one or two shelters and 
promise that we're going to send different assets um, there okay. and not just put it on the backs of one community. Okay. Um, uh, with regard to command and control, emergency managers are very comfortable with incident command that each town has their own emergency plan, their own emergency operations center where they can communicate to the state and there's you know different ways there's virtual there's a system called web eoc uh -huh. that manages large scale and even small scale events but if you don't have connectivity with the internet there you know amateur radio there's there's connectivity that way another means but for health emergencies kind of throws people for a loop because you know fire chiefs police chiefs and whoever the emergency manager is that's not in their wheelhouse Okay. It's not a fire, it's not a flood, it's not right. an accident. It's, there are some other pieces. So the, the health system, the public health system, has a seat under the ESF 8 desk at the state's emergency operations center. And while that informs the bigger decision making at the state level, each region has essentially, I would call it a health EOC. Okay. So if something's happening in one town or two towns and they need health guidance, information, assets, they communicate with that health EOC. It's also known as a MACE. A it's mace. a multi-agency coordinating entity. It's essentially a place to coordinate resources and communications for health emergencies. Okay. So it's a little bit different. Some emergency managers have to get used to that, um, but it's, it's designed for specific events that are public health or health focused because they have a lot of nuance to them and most of the emergency management folks aren't as used to it. Um, so if we had an anthrax or smallpox or even sheltering operations going on and we needed some clinical or other guidelines or guidance, you would run it through the MACE to the ESF 8 desk and then that would inform the decision making. So okay. everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. It's just that we're not going up one way. They don't have an answer. They're going over here looking for an answer, fishing around. It's it's a kind of a side pathway. It still functions under incident command, yeah. but it's, it's specific to health. So you, you have a number of, uh, of um, response plans that you've kind of worked on over the years. Mm -hmm. Give me a couple examples of, of some sure. of those. I mean, we've talked about smallpox and anthrax. So yeah, I, I alluded to the fact that we have been talking as a department and as a community about smallpox, or sorry, um, pandemic influenza. So we really started the whole process in terms of emergencies around med surge. You know, okay. what would it look like? And a lot of the what models- What is med surge? So med surge would be um, what we would consider above and beyond the number of people we would expect to be seeking out clinical services, typically around the hospital. And the hospitals are responsible for, under their joint commission, which is their accreditation body, to have the ability to close elective procedures and swell the number of beds by X amount based on their size. As a community, remember public health is community-minded, clinical medicine is, is more patient-centric, and we work together in something like this that if 30% of people might be out of work or sick, you know, some percentage of those folks are gonna need, aren't gonna be able to stay home and recover where we have to find that spot is 
we have the ability in Manchester to open up a 100-bed facility um, to take, I say, to take the heat off the hospitals so that the people who have, who have the most acute need can be directly sent to the hospitals. So we would do that in concert with EMS and dispatch where we could even do some pre-screening. We did a little bit of that with H1N1 and even with Ebola is we can change the script for EMS. So when someone says, yeah, I've got a fever of 101 and I have X, Y, and Z, if they say the right code words, I guess, we would then EMS would know they're going directly to the hospital or at the time of the event, if they don't quite meet those criteria, they're going to what we call an alternate care site, which is this, I call it the JV hospital or the okay. intermediate level of care. Okay. You know, we don't have ventilators. What we do have, and we're building this capacity as sort of a lesson learned is oxygen. So either H tanks, big tanks, or concentrators to provide that level of support. And we also have a cache of IV fluids. One of the big edicts that came out after 9-11 was everyone should have a three-day supply of everything. So from a personal standpoint, families should have a three-day supply of food and water because it might take that long for resources to get to you. Okay. That's sort of a general rule of thumb. Okay. So we have a three-day supply of IV so that we could set up one of these alternate based care on sites. Based on 100-bed capacity? Correct. So okay. I get a lot of workout lugging IV <laughs> and rotating that multiple times per year. Right. I try not to do it when it's 95 degrees, but right. sometimes it depends on the dates on the package. Right. So we have an agreement with one of the hospitals to rotate those supplies. So we have oxygen and IV and medical beds, and we purchased those supplies you know, around the time of H1N1 because that was part of the planning assumption. What we really try extremely hard to do is be mindful of fiscal responsibility. And we have all of these beds that sit in various locations and we don't use them. So we like to think of our public health emergency tools, our medical beds that are were purchased for this alternate hospital, alternate care site. Mm -hmm. We should be using them at any chance we can. So we use them and we have 80 of them on a shelter trailer that is stored in a location that we can quickly get it from different places to different places. And we can pre-position our shelter supplies at one of our sheltering sites. Even though they're the medical cots, we have them ready to go because we're more likely to open a shelter. And uh -huh. even if we were going to open an alternate care site, it's not a mass casualty situation. It's a pandemic flu, which would be, we can see the data suggests that we need to start thinking about this. So it's not a, like an immediate issue. A bomb blew up and exactly. so there's hundreds of people that need. If they wanted to take our trailer to use it for that, that's yeah. fine. Fire yeah. fire has complete access to it. Okay. Um, but we. And that's who would actually respond in that would. case. Yes. Is, is fire, but, it, yep. but you're going to take over if it's a pandemic flu. Exactly. Okay. So, right. so we have you know, full use of those supplies because mm -hmm. they, they can be and used And again, it's a thing that can be repurposed. Absolutely. It's, this seems a, it's a common theme, it seems, where you're always looking for a way to have multifunctional assets and, and organizations. It's true. I mean, as it's, it's prudent to be mindful of, of tax dollars, for, first and foremost. Um, you know, secondarily, the access to funding continues to shrink. 
So we are in a position to do that regardless, but I like to think that we want to make sure, and we've actually used or allowed for partners to use the supplies for different events where there might be a need for first aid or triage as the right thing to do. So there's a lot of utility there. So our plans are set up, and it, we throw around a lot of terms like plans and annexes and appendices. It sort of depends on where they fit. If it's, in, if, if it's like an attachment to something else, it might be called one thing or another. We have a sort of a core plan that kind of talks about all of what we're talking about, sort of the planning assumptions and the, the notifications and, and whatnot. Um, but then we have specific elements um, that talk about dispensing. We have any number of functional plans for every pod site, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a risk communication um, plan for how are we going to message in different ways. Uh, we have an isolation and quarantine component. So we build chapters in the bigger book of okay. planning. We've talked about anthrax and smallpox, but if there's a meningitis issue or hepatitis, whatever letter you want to put after it, or something new, the elements and the plans that we have and the partnerships and the messaging, we can use like that accordion and use uh-huh. it to the extent. So we don't have an H1N1 plan but we can certainly take pieces of the other plans and implement them. I think it's fascinating the way you're, you're thinking about capabilities and what you need rather than a, spe- than a specific, here's the event, let's have a plan for that event. It's instead, it's a, it's a capability focused. So we were talking about in addition to uh, uh, formal uh, supports, you have a lot of interactions with community-based groups that are maybe not part of the government structure. Yeah, like, like I mentioned before, there's absolutely no way that government and its uh, partners are going to be able to elicit a comprehensive response to the, the worst case scenarios. I think we're, we're pretty well equipped to deal with things at a you know, more controlled level, but if we had a, 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 you know, a statewide incident or even a large regional incident, it would, it would tax existing infrastructure. Um, one of my... Um, one of the things that we've been working on in our region, which I have found to be very um, fruitful, is to gather the, um, what I like to call the affiliated volunteer groups that exist, um, that are typically involved in emergency response. Um, one of the things about volunteers is we, we love volunteers because we, we need them and we're happy that folks are engaged in their community. Um, trained volunteers are, are optimal. And I say that with all due respect in that if, if folks are um, comfortable with incident command um, and, and if people want some fun and exciting times, they can go to FEMA.gov and do incident command classes for free. They're kind of like at your own pace and you can get certificates. And a lot of jobs, especially in healthcare, require and schools require incident command classes. But they un- you understand the lingo. So you know what you're, how to plug into an emergency, the hierarchy of control, you know, the way that information and requests are supposed to go. Um, because in some instances, a few times, I've worked with folks that on a, daily, on a day-to-day basis, they may have one job, but because they have a particular skill, they might be the boss in an event, which they may have people answering to them under incident command, whereas 
every other day, it's the, it's it's the, the reverse. Yeah. And you have to check your ego at the door and all of that stuff. But it's, a, it's important for folks to be comfortable as well as to be comfortable with what the roles and assigned tasks will be. So in our region, we have um, a great partnership with, and I oversee the Medical Reserve Corps. Okay. And I tell folks, you're not joining the, the public health military. Um, we're not going to come and get you in the middle of the night to deploy you to something. Right. Um, it, it's because it's it was under the auspice of the Surgeon General's office, uh, hence the you know the military connotation. Uh-huh. But I don't believe that the Surgeon General is a surgeon nor a general. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, so it started again after 9/11. President Bush and everyone else realized that we didn't have infrastructure to to inoculate and vaccinate and prophylax folks, we need to build volunteer capacity. I mentioned I spend a lot of time out talking to students about opportunities to volunteer, to be part of your community. And certainly there are multiple Medical Reserve Corps units in New Hampshire. So if you don't work or live in the greater Manchester public health region, um, there are several other regions that have uh, Medical Reserve Corps units um, if you go to nhresponds.gov, you can go and check that out. I think it's .gov. Okay. I'll it put may, up a it, link on the, on the yeah, website. Yeah, maybe .org, NH but I think Responds. it's .gov. And .gov. you can register, and then the coordinator of the unit nearest you will get in contact with you. And we spent a lot of time in our Medical Reserve Corps unit, you know, reviewing things that they may be asked to do. So pods, sheltering operations, um, doing certain tasks or functions within those different groups, and just getting to know folks. Um, you know, it's community building. It's it's sometimes business connections. People have found jobs from networking. Sure. I mean, it's just it's just good to be part of the, your community in a proactive way. We sort of have an analogous group to the Medical Reserve Corps, the non-medical arm, if you will, called the CERTs, and that's C-E-R-T, not a breath mint. Uh, for those of you who are of my age, and that is Community Emergency Response Team. And they are volunteers that may or may not have a medical background, but they're also trained in incident command and other functions that help support a lot of the work that we do. In if our, if oh, someone sorry. wants to be part of that yep. function as a volunteer, is there a website they can go I, to as I well? Believe is it the same it, one? I believe it's the same website. Okay. I'll double check that. And in our particular region, we have groups in Bedford, Gosstown, and New Boston. Okay. And we also partner with the Red Cross locally. And we also have a very strong engagement with amateur radio. So ham radio, as it's okay. affectionately known. Yep. Um, because when all communications have gone down, those usually haven't. And it's just another way for us to be prepared and have uh, depth in communications. So we have all of these groups. We get together every other month. We look at trainings. We look at opportunities to you know, work with one another before the emergencies happen. And uh, it's another good opportunity to, to coordinate. To that end, with all of the, you know, the interest around volunteerism and, and these groups, we're planning as a state a, a very large conference. And usually this conference happens in the fall but this is going to be special because it is going to be a conference with exercises attached to it, not calisthenics, but um, actual hands-on learning. So in April of 2016, um, we're gonna spend a Saturday 
with all these partners across the state working on pods and sheltering. Roles okay. to be determined, functions to be determined, but it's wonderful to go to training, but it's great to actually see it and do it in action. So you'll break out the beds and... Yep, and, and dispense the M&Ms or whatever we're right, gonna do. Right. And people will have the chance to be a client and a worker. So you get to you know, see both sides of the coin and provide feedback about, you know, boy, they don't know how to transport a patient. They drop me off the gurney. No, hopefully not something like that. But it, it's, a, it's something a long time in coming. Everybody has a different level of opportunity to get involved with events, depending on where you are in the state. But these, you know, I can't emphasize enough the need for folks to be engaged and, and certainly there are other groups that exist in communities. Uh, we had talked about you know, folks do, that do voter registration and other civic groups like Kiwanis and Lions and Rotaries and you name it, that you know, at a minimum, I'm sure folks that work in public health preparedness would be happy to come out and talk to folks. I've done it um, around when H1N1 was exciting. I went out to talk to different groups and just other public health topics of interest, just to plant that seed and to see if we do have a big emergency, you know, would those folks be available to, to help out? Yeah, great. So if, if, if someone is interested in, in getting registered and, and getting a little bit of training, they can go uh, to this, this uh, nhresponds.gov or, or .org website and we'll figure that out and I'll put it up on the uh, podcast website and they can get that training beforehand, hopefully, right? Rather than when the incident happens and everybody wants to help. Yeah, all of the all of the FEMA trainings, the incident command, um, incident IS one hundred and two hundred, and then there's also a seven hundred and eight hundred. Those are usually the ones that are universal. So it's one hundred, two hundred, seven hundred, and eight hundred. I would not recommend doing them late at night. You can go at your own pace, and at uh -huh. the end, you can print out, you can do an exam. And then you'll get a certificate that you can print off and give to the volunteer group leader so they have proof of that. So it is nhresponds.org. .org, yeah. okay. Just wanted to make sure we get people to the right right spot. All right. I think of it as .gov because it's governmentally run, but okay. .org. Okay, great. Well, ironically, as we were sitting here, <laughs> uh, Tim Susi, who I interviewed previously on the podcast, uh, just came to the door. I had to shut the recorder off and uh, told Phil that, that they have an emergency to go respond to. So we're going to wrap up. Kind of any, any last thoughts uh, about the challenges that you face in coordinating? We've talked about how people can get involved if they'd like through the Medical Reserve Corps. Anything else you'd like to share kind of in conclusion? I, I just hope that um, folks who are listening understand you know, what's going on behind the scenes and hopefully take the opportunity to reach out to their you know, local officials and, and volunteer groups to see you know, what they're working on and how they can become involved. Because you know, like I mentioned before, you know, any type of issue, whether it's a public health emergency or some other type of emergency, um, we're gonna need you know, all hands on deck so if folks have some of that incident command training, that's wonderful. Or if they just want to help, you know, there's probably some way, if you're good with animals, you know, you may be able to plug into, uh, you know, the, the animal sheltering operation, volunteer 
I, I highly in, encourage folks to do that. And then just well, probably the last two things would be make sure that you <clears throat> have your own family plan. So what happens if do you have food and water for how about medication? Do you have a list of things that documents and do you have a plan for if you're not all in the same place where you're going to go meet? You know, these types of things are really important. And even going to the level of maybe everyone will call someone that lives somewhere else out of the region as a place to connect if communications are down. You know, you may not be able to communicate with one another. I think that's that's a, a very important point. Oh, that's an I've never thought of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, looking at your own sort of plan because we tell our our volunteers and, and and workers if you're not if you don't have things settled at home, then you're not going to be in a position to respond to the bigger event. So I, I would say that that's you know first and foremost, make sure your your house is in order, and you know we certainly welcome folks to become involved, and you know we're out there fighting these battles and, and will continue to do so and, and welcome the support of the, the public to do it. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really educational for me and I hope uh, lots of uh, listeners will, will get something out of it too. My pleasure. And if uh, you want to have uh, us back for anyone from the department to talk about some of the other things that we do, um, we're more than, more than happy to talk about passion. So Excellent. thanks again for having me, Mark. All right. Thank you. You bet. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.